0: You're not sleeping well. You feel out of control or you have difficulty concentrating. You're irritable over the little things. Did you know these are some of the signs of depression? Women are at least twice as likely to experience an episode of major depression as men. And if you're a black woman, you are only half as likely to seek help. When award-winning writer, producer, and motivational speaker Trey Anthony started researching her new book, Black Girl in Love with Herself, she realized for the first time in her life that she might actually
1: be depressed. If there's ever a time for you to fall apart, this is the time like you're ending a five-year relationship you are practically homeless you have nowhere to go you are parenting for the first time with a young baby that I had just adopted I was also parenting for the first time in a pandemic (laughs) I was lonely I was isolated and so I was like if there's ever a time for somebody to be like oh my god this is a lot
0: money burnout boundaries Sacrificing your needs to please others. Anthony has written the book that she needed to read as a Black woman, trying to lead in a world that often acts like she doesn't
1: exist. I'm Trey Anthony, and this is a lesson on showing up for yourself.
0: What is your earliest memory of being creative?
1: My earliest memory is with my grandmother. I probably was about six or seven. And my grandmother used to really encourage me to write stories. And I was always had a very vivid imagination. And my grandmother would really indulge that I would say to the point of like, if I started to make up a story and then she would be like, well, add this and say this. (laughs) And then um, she also, one of the things that we used to do and now I'm dating myself, I used to live in England, and there used to be the show called Top of the Pops, Mm -hmm. what would be the number one song in England. So my grandmother, we would buy the record, whatever was number one that week, and my grandmother would let me lip sync to it and kind of dance. And then we would make up kind of like a story to the song. So those are my really earliest memories of my grandmother really just Mm -hmm. loved the arts, and she really just found me very entertaining. Always had this built in audience with her, and she just thought whatever I did was just amazing. And so that's kind of what I did.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's so beautiful. Tell me a little bit about, before we talk about the book, but about the moments that sort of brought you to this place. So you produced a play,
1: and then it got picked up, and then it got turned into television, and all of this. I started out wanting to be an actor, also a rapper. and a singer and all of those things it ended up happening is I interned at the Chris Rock show and I was in New York and I came back to Canada and I got this top agent and I thought you know I'd been in New York working on the Chris Rock show and I just thought okay well what more is there to know and I'm talented and I will go out and audition And my agent sent me, my first audition was to play Crackhead number one, then there was Crackhead number two, and then there was Black Girl on Welfare number three, and it was just all of these really stereotypical roles, and I remember coming home one day just crying, and I said to my grandmother, you know, I said they just keep giving me these awful roles, like I said they're so shitty. And my grandmother said, well, if they're writing shit for you, then write your own shit. And that was that was kind of what she said. And that's how I started writing out of real necessity. And the first piece that I ever wrote was The Kink in My Hair. And it was supposed to be a one-woman show. And I invited some friends who were also unemployed actors and who were all all dying to have a big break. And I wanted to just kind of see what the monologue sounded like because they were all monologue driven at that point. Tell people what was the show about? So the show was about six Black women in various stages of their lives who all went to this one hair salon, which was run by Novelette. And I grew up in the hair salon. My aunt was a hairdresser, so I kind of knew the ins and outs of what a hair salon was like, and especially just what the hair salon represented for Black women, because I was there every single Saturday, so I knew what it was. And I decided that the monologues would really deal with some heavy issues around Black women's lives. So there was a monologue that dealt with like colorism in the Black community. There was another monologue on suicide. There was one on um, police brutality and a mother losing her son. There was another monologue on incest. And then there was a fun monologue about an 80-year-old grandmother finding her groove and falling in love with her neighbor next door. Wow. And- Yes, so it was, and to me, it was really something to kind of showcase my range as an actor. And then when I got all of these friends to come and read for the parts so I could hear them and make adjustment, they were all so good that I was like, wow, you should be in this play, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I didn't have a role for myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I wrote the role of Novelette, who was the hairdresser who basically ran this salon. And because the monologues were so heavy and so deep, I decided that Novelette would be kind of like the person who provided the comic relief and the lightness in the show. And that's how it came about. And we entered it in the Toronto Fringe Festival And like I said, it was my first show. I didn't even have the money to, I think the registration at that time was maybe about $600. I didn't even have it. My partner at the time lent me the money. My friend whose hair salon was um, closing down gave us the chair and that's kind of how we did it. And it became this overnight sensation. And to this day, There has never been a show that has sold as many tickets and broken box office records like The Kink of My Hair. Like people just came out in droves. And then from there, it went to Theatre Pass Marais and opened their season. And then it got picked up by Mervish Productions, which is our commercial theatre producers in Canada, so they do shows like Hairspray, Lion King, Soul of the Big Shows, and this was their first Canadian production that they had ever done in the Princess of Wales Theatre, which was a 2000 seat theatre, and we went there. And so it all just seemed to happen, like I never expected any of this to become what it was and it just kind of took on a life of its own and then it became this TV show and that made me the first black woman in Canada to ever have a television show on a primetime Canadian network. What was that? That was in 2007. Yeah.
0: It's an incredible accomplishment. It also speaks volumes for the systemic racism that is oh, in the culture. Even though people, you know, and being Canadian, I was. I'm you know, proud of my multiculturalism, but not. People say, oh, there's no racism in Canada. It's not true. I'm grateful that you were the person to have that milestone. And wouldn't it be wonderful if there were more
1: of those? Oh, definitely. It's funny, I uh, mentioned that my brother was in this training program for young producers in Canada. And he said, what they were talking about and the rollout that they gave was the kink in my hair as the multicultural show because nothing has been done ever since then as a Black show in Canada. And we came off the air in 2010. And so it's really just, I I just think it's shameful that this is the show that they still are talking about as their flagship show, how many years later around diversity in Canada.
0: This, and I could say it's probably the same reason, part of the same reason that I ended up in the U.S. as well. And you ended Mm -hmm. up in the U.S. because black culture, Mm -hmm. and it it has marketing Canada too, but there's too many gatekeepers and, and none of them are vested and what it means to be other, but mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, obviously, people understand the value. Yes. Of yes. Culture, and so you you end up in the United States. Mm-hmm. What happens there?
1: So, in the U.S., I actually did my the kink of my hair. They did the play there again, and then I got a playwright residency at Horizon Theatre, and they did my new show, How Black Mothers Say I Love You. And from that show, an exec from the OWN Network came and saw that and invited me to come and be a part of their writing room for the OWN Network. And so that's kind of where I stayed for a long time writing for that show. I think it's one of those things where you reinvent yourself every couple of years. Mm -hmm. And as much as I really loved writing and as much as I really loved acting I felt there was a bigger calling and purpose on my life and for me I was really interested in the self-help market I've always been very interested in like manifesting visioning um, you know your thoughts influence what shows up in your life and the more I kept doing this, and the more people kept talking to me about it, and the more I kept talking to people about it, I just realized for myself that there was, again, another space that was not including Black women. And I was going to all of these self-help workshops and expos and reading all of these books, and, and there just wasn't anything that spoke specifically to black women. Oprah though, Oprah is the,
0: I feel like the queen of self-help and Ilanya Benzend. And so there are some authors. What is it that you think makes it different for you? What is different than, you know, sort of what's
1: out there? I think I'm the first one in the sense of I'm specifically saying the book is a black girl in love with herself. So there's no doubt of whether or not, yeah, who's it for? And why it's for us, and I think with Oprah and Iyana, who I, I love, you know, both of them have been, you know, definite, definite uh, mentors for me. I think they have definitely kind of gone much more mainstream and broader, so everybody can jump on. Where is for me, I wanted to be very niche and very particular, and in the book, it really addresses the 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 real uniques things that occur as for us as Black women moving through spaces, you know? And so I talk about things around us with our mothers, right? Like a lot of us come from backgrounds where our mothers are in survival mode, or teach us how to be strong, but don't teach us how to be vulnerable. I also talk about Black women in the workspace with our hair, and how we have been censored around our hair, and women trying to touch our hair, or our hair, if it's in our natural state, being deemed as unprofessional. How we choose partners as well, and our fathers, friendship, and I talk about vulnerability in my own life around vulnerability, and also depression, and suicide, and mental health, how there's a stigma in the Black community that we do not talk about those things, and yet it's happening. So sexual abuse, how that affects us as Black women, and how that sometimes gets swept under the rug, and yet it shows up in various ways. So for me, the book was really about saying it's time we really pull back the curtains and kind of take a look at how certain things have really affected us every single day, and yet we get up in this mode of, oh, I'm a strong Black woman, I'm surviving, I'm doing this. One of the biggest things in the messaging that I get, I said, I've been guilty of this, of where I would leave like really empowering messages on my friend's Facebook messaging, or if I called them, I'd be like, you got this girl, or yes, and leave an Angela Davis quote, or something really empowering. And when I was going through my own breakup and demise and my world was falling apart, I realized, I said, I didn't have a safe space to fall apart. All of my friends were giving me these words of encouragement and I felt a level of shame around, I didn't feel like I got it. I didn't feel strong. What I felt was really weak, really vulnerable, really scared, really pathetic. And I just didn't feel that there was any space for me to fall apart because everybody always saw me as the strong one, the one who's got it, the one, and I was in a real state of depression and I thought I was the only one who was going through that. And so in the book I talk about how do we create safe spaces for other black women to fall apart? Like it's not enough to say to your sister anymore, you've got this because a lot of us don't got it and we are suffering in silence around that.
0: You're seeing, especially in the US, a movement of younger women in particular Mm -hmm. starting, I've I've seen a couple, at least two startups around mental health and women and making sure that you find Black women in particular, making sure that you find your therapist, Mm -hmm. making sure that you are able to speak about it. We're in this incredibly interesting moment right now where... Black women in particular, and if it, I, I think about this so often if you look at so many of the movements of social change that are happening, yeah. Black women are at the forefront. I don't, it's, you know, the strength piece is one of those things that comes up again and again, right? But it's, it's there's something about, too, when you are not recognized, mm-hmm. you have nothing to lose in many yeah. ways. And mm-hmm. so- this, I think, you know, for using your voice. I, I, and I grew up as a mixed person inside of a, a white racist family. So, mm-hmm. regardless of whether my skin matched or not, I was definitely the outsider. So mm-hmm. I didn't have anything. Again, you feel like you have nothing to lose. I think that's why I've been so. Uh, confident in my own path and it, it, even though yeah. I've been hot mess all like all the way along right there's no doubt about it but that there's like uh, look you're not going to tell me what to do because you just don't see me
1: yes so yes I'm
0: curious if if for you because you are now we've talked about the one stepping out and saying things perhaps that other people don't say I i read a quote from you on one of your, you know, Facebook or Instagram, where you're talking about how even when you were going through your breakthrough or break up breakthrough, friends were not there for you in the way that you had been for them. Mm -hmm. So you were the, and that's, I think, common when you're, again, you're the person leading. So leaders don't have the same luxury. Yes. I don't think that so many women leaders anyway, that so many others do because when you're leading you are
1: just by nature different.
0: So how have you how have you navigated that?
1: It was really about being honest with people and also naming it for myself that this is a time if there's ever a time for you to fall apart this is the time. Like you're ending a five year relationship. You are practically homeless. You have nowhere to go. You are parenting for the first time with a young baby that I had just adopted. I was also parenting for the first time in a pandemic. (laughs) I was lonely, I was isolated. And so I was like, if there's ever a time for somebody to be like, oh my God, this is a lot, this would be the time. And so, and I remember reading a meme, one of those memes that was going around, what was saying, like, this is the time to check on the strong ones, your strong friends. And for me, it was about saying to people, I really am struggling here. And in the book, I talk about the first time I sought out professional help and the irony of it, as I was writing this book, I was interviewing a Black psychotherapist and she was talking about how with Black women, when they suffer from depression, that a lot of us don't even know that we're depressed. And so by the time we actually seek help, our symptoms are five times more severe than white women because we do not even recognize that we're depressed. And so as, she was, as I was interviewing her and I was like, oh, so what are some of the symptoms of depression? And she was listing them all. I was sitting there going, oh, my God, I have every single one of these symptoms. And yet I was getting up and doing this. And that was when I realized for myself I was in a severe depressed mode. And I actually went and sought help for the first time. And in the book, I talk about the shame of being diagnosed with depression, and also when the medication showed up at my door, my resistance to take it, because I did not want to be viewed as weak or falling apart or crazy. And it sat on my counter for days as I had this discussion with myself. And yet I realized I was in this fog. And it wasn't until another friend of mine, them falling apart, they were basically doing facebook live and it was basically a suicide a live suicide on facebook and i got up and as i was watching this i called them and i said please don't do this i know how it feels to be in this space i know how it feels and when we spoke i said i also have depression i've also been in that dark space and they said you you have it all together you're you are at the top of your game you And I said, yes, I have it all together. And yes, I'm at the top of my game, but I also have depression. (laughs) And I said, one does not cancel out the other. And I think until we recognize that with, in the black community, that many, and it was only after I I became public about my own struggle that I had so many other women, women who I also were like, oh, they've got it together. They are at the top of their game were like, you know, one of, I had a friend who called me, who said I attempted suicide twice and no one knows. And since you've come out and talked about your own struggle with depression, it's, it's freed me. I've had other women who are like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm popping these pills too. <laughs> I haven't told anybody, but I've been, you know, on medication for two years and I haven't told anybody. And so I think it's, it's just a stigma in the community that you do not talk about it. And so for me, I was just like, I think if somebody who was in the public eye had spoken really about their own struggles, I would have been able to recognize my symptoms sooner and not been in such a dark and desperate space. And I'm a big believer, Kim, like even before I started taking medication, I thought I could do this on my own. Like I was I was jogging, I was doing yoga, I was doing meditation, I was doing all of these things, journaling. And then I realized that this is so much more. And when I spoke to the therapist, the therapist said to me, and it was one of those things that really hit me. He said, you are dealing with a five-year, demise of a five-year breakup. You are mothering for the first time. You are in the pandemic. You are dealing with a move. You You are pretty much like in between homes. He goes, just one of these things would create stress. And he goes, you have five of these things going on all at once and you do not see a reason to say I need help. He goes, I don't understand. He was like, what took you so long? And I said, because I thought I got this. I just thought I should be able to handle this. And I, even when he prescribed the medication, I said to him, oh, well, I'm only gonna be on, on it a couple of weeks, so don't worry. you don't. I, and he said to me, no, you are severely depressed. He goes, you will definitely be on this medication for at least a year or more. And he said, you need this. And he says, stop resisting this. He goes, everything you have described to me sounds like you are in a severe depression. That was something that it was very hard for me to accept because I've always been the strong one. I've always been the one who's like, I can handle this. I got this. I don't go to anyone for help.
0: What would you tell a woman who's listening who thinks I've got it together? Where could she look? What could she
1: do to figure
0: out that now is the time to ask for help?
1: I think we do not need to get to the state where I was, where it was feeling heavy. I do not think we need to get to the state where my friend was who was on a Facebook Live saying goodbye to her friends and family. Mm -hmm. This is about you as a Black woman asking for support because you give it to other people without question. Mm -hmm. So why can you not then give it for yourself? And I think that is what I would say to any woman listening give to yourself what you would give to others without question. And a lot of us do that, but we don't think that we are worthy of that. And that was a lesson that I had to learn because I do it, I show up for everybody and I show up in a way and give hundred percent at all times. And yet I don't feel that I'm worthy of that level of support. I think too,
0: for some women, depending on the, you know how you were raised, they think it comes with strings. Oh yes, I think that they will owe somebody something. I mm-hmm. mm-hmm. think that it will mean that somebody has, I guess, access into privacy, private things, mm-hmm. betray them in some ways. I think there's a lot of things that are wrapped up in oh, help and in, in receiving and being vulnerable. Definitely. Have you had any experience with that, with anybody you've worked
1: with or
0: spoken to?
1: Definitely. In the book, I talk about as much as my grandma, wonderful influence in my life. She also created certain things in my life that I had to recognize. Like one of the things my grandmother used to always say is don't tell anybody your business or people are praying for your downfall. Don't trust her. She doesn't mean you any good. And there was this kind of I feel like this narrative that she spun in my head, especially around trusting other black women, right? Mm -hmm. And being like, oh, don't think that everybody's happy for you, they're not. And so for many years of my life, I walked around with this level of paranoia and kind of was like, oh, I think they're out to get me or they're trying to set me up or they're not that happy for me, right? So let me keep everything close to my chest. Mm -hmm. And I think, just in the same way, as I said, your thoughts become things. If you're walking around with that, that is what is going to show up in your life of people trying to uh, stab you in the back, of people talking about you and all those things. And I had to change that narrative and say, of course, there has been moments in my life where people who I thought I could trust has let me down and have betrayed me. But there are also very precious and many moments of women who have just shown up for me time and time again. And it's like, I got you. And I need to also focus on that and remember that. Mm-hmm. And so I started to change that narrative around saying it is okay, even when. I started therapy when I was going through all of this crisis. I was paying for medication. I was paying for an, a newborn who had a special formula. His formula was costing me like nearly $70 a can a week. And of course, because of the pandemic, all of my shows and all of my income was gone. Yeah. yeah. And one of my friends calls me up and she said to me, how's your therapy going? And I said, oh, I'm not doing therapy anymore because something had to give. I couldn't afford a $150 session every week so I gave that up. And she was like, no, mm -mm." she said, no, we will pay for your therapy. We can't afford to lose you. And she goes, what's your bank account number? I'll put in the $150 every week. And there was this level of shame that came up for me, Kim, where I was like, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. No, 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 no. I'm all right. No, I don't need your money because I was, I also was used to my grandmother was saying don't take money from anybody Mm -hmm. you know they're going to throw it back in your face and it took me at least two weeks and I was rocking one day I had my son in my arms and I was looking down at him and I said he deserves a mother who is well he deserves a mother who is balanced he deserves a mother who has somebody to talk to and I called up my friend and I said hey here's my bank account number I need that money thank you And that was a level of vulnerability that I had never had of ever saying to somebody, you know, I need this money, Mm. right? But, But I realized it was important. Asking
0: each other about what it is we're making or asking for our value or even acknowledging that the care we give has value, all of that is part of the cultural shift that we are in the midst of. Even modeling the, the, the crazy, the broken nature, like life can feel like sometimes because never before have so many women been running business, never before have so many women been in creative business in this way and running families and in a pandemic and all of those things many of us don't have role models and it's important that we model as much as possible that you can still be, you know, fucked up sometimes yeah, and actually still carry everybody and yourself and your Mm -hmm. family and make change. And it's okay. Because even asking for that support and being carried is part of the modeling of Mm -hmm. what, the new success means. Yeah, exactly. We joked before we started this that each of our sons is asleep, and we will see who <laughs> son wakes up first to interrupt the interview. Oh, so I know we're on borrowed time here, but how has mothering changed you? Mm-hmm.
1: Mothering really knocked me to my knees. That is the only way to describe it. I think also being a solo parent, mothering has also made me realize that I need to have built-in support and I should be able to ask for that support. It also has shaped me in a way of realizing what's important and what does my son need and it's not all of these material possessions. I've I've become really, I think, very simple now in the way that I move through the world of kind of really getting rid of all of the things that I thought were really important to me. And now recognizing what my son needs from me is my love. What he needs from me is my attention. What he needs from me is a mother who is healthy and who shows up for herself. And so even in the way that I talk to him in a way of like encouraging and in a soft voice and being just now the voice now I use for myself because I realize there's still that little girl in me who needed someone to be that gentle with me. So mothering has changed me in a way of also recognizing too, I think you also see for yourself how you did not receive the love that was needed for you as a little person. And it also, in that, it also has made me more forgiving of my own mother and of my own grandmother because there are some days I'm just like, dear God, (laughs) right? (laughs) Who does this? And then who willingly signs up to do this? (laughs) I literally think
0: to myself sometimes like, oh, this is why women go crazy. (laughs) And also there are moments where I'm like, I am going to
1: lose my mind. I remember when I used to co- coach women myself and I used to say the same thing of, oh, find time for you and you need to do this and you need to, and I'm like, shut up. Like, 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 of course you do find it, but it is hard, hard to jog for half an hour. It takes me an hour and a half to get ready for a half hour jog with him, right? And I'm just okay. like, oh my God.
0: Here's where I'm gonna, just for everybody listening who is my client, here's where I'm gonna double down. It is even more important than ever, right? So as I'm doing dishes the other night and pissed, I am like, I don't need, I need somebody to do these dishes and I'm going to pay for it. Even if it gets my bank account down to the last $12, it is even more important than ever because I cannot show up as the complete bitch that I can be, if I really am not enjoying life. And I know some people are like, Oh, buck up. There's this, I think it's a very dude culture too. That's like, Oh, just suck it up. You can do it or work hard, work hard. And it's yeah. like, no, that is not leadership in the feminine, but this whole idea that I should be able to, or that I must be keeping the house clean that I need to be a house for and run a business and be a mom. And then please don't even try to tell me that I can't work and be a mom at the same time, because if I'm called to do both, my belief is that I should be able to, that I am doing both. But the priorities or the, the emphasis and the place that we've given to certain aspects of womanhood really to mm-hmm. change in my mind. And that that is where the support needs to come in. It is hard. like It is, it it is hard.
1: hard. It is hard. And no one can describe it enough for you unless you are experiencing it and doing it yourself. And I think, especially when you are a solo parent, it's there, cause there is nobody that you can kind of say, you know what, like even last night my son got up at like three in the morning and I was like, I wish I had somebody to say, can you get that bottle? <laughs> can you go downstairs and get that bottle? It's you. And not
0: me complaining because again, I, I would not trade this for anything. But definitely what it's causing me to do is to think about the rules that are written in the culture for the way we do things that actually yeah. don't make sense because they make sense if you have a, a ton of time and you're a dude and mm-hmm. your wife is at home keeping that. But if you're even, even if you're two, a couple and you both have jobs, some of the ways that we do things And Mm -hmm. some of the administrative, the unnecessary administration, the, you know, the, this digital movement has really made me think like, there's things we could be doing digitally. There's things we could be doing much Mm -hmm. more easily than we do. And nobody has taken a good look at the way the systems Mm. really need to blow open some of the systems and, and, and simplify. It's what you said about simplifying when uh-huh. surroundings and I meet mean, me too. Like I'm throwing stuff out like a crazy person because I cannot take the clutter. Yes, that's you know, it. That is. You know, mind clutter, life clutter, but we have not done that in the culture. And I, I'd say um, my call out is to every single woman listening. If there is one thing that you think is stupid, like from a bank policy to a, a school policy to a something, just fix that, just that one thing. Mm -hmm. and you would have a different world.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Can you complete the sentence, my wish for every other
1: woman is? To be healthy and take the time to make yourself healthy show up for yourself you cannot show up for others until you show up for yourself and it's not being selfish it's not being indulgent it is really showing up for yourself to be the best that you can so that would be my wish is for you to do whatever it takes to show up healthy
0: you have all of the answers when you ask the right questions be visible Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. Produced and edited by Sergio Miranda. Also produced by Phyllis Newman. And associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.